Thank you, guys. Um, hey, we'll, I'll probably mention this again, but you can celebrate that in the first service and um, at the first service, at the end of the service, as we talked about this good shepherd, um, there was a man, uh, a gentleman who came forward and said that, um, you know, he felt like he had kind of walked an aisle and prayed a prayer when he was a kid, but had turned his back on God and, and really felt like maybe he never really knew him. And so he came forward this morning and uh, wanted to ask Jesus to save him so that he could follow the, the good shepherd. So he traded up shepherds, as we'll talk about in a few minutes. So his name is Eric. Be praying for Eric as we continue to engage with him and <clears throat> get to know him and find out what's going on in his life. So um, we'll talk more about um, kind of what, what that can't happen today for that. But so we've been intentionally, during this Advent time, we've been very intentionally engaging in something, and you've heard us use this word, engaging in something called liturgy. And uh, literally, literally, liturgy um, just means um, a service of people, or people service, um, technically. And so it, it really just means that like, it's come to mean over time an order of worship, or something along those lines, an order, a pattern of worship. Um, and everyone has liturgy. You have liturgy in your life. You have a pattern, an order to your life. There's the way you, when you get up, there's probably a, a pretty set sequence of events that follow when you get up in the morning and when you go out or what you're doing. And, and so the, the question about liturgy isn't whether or not we have liturgy. That's like saying, um, you know, everyone is a theologian. Some people are just bad theologians. All of us have liturgy. We may just have unintentional liturgy, liturgy that we don't know what it means. And if you grew up in a more liturgical church, meaning a church that, <clears throat> that emphasizes the importance of the liturgy itself, um, uh, then, then you probably have a lot of different experiences with that and, and looking at that. Um, what we've tried to do is we always want to engage with these things. So we have a liturgy too. It's why um, if you were standing and someone just said the word amen, your knees would go because you're you're going to sit. Amen means sit in the Baptist world, right? And so it's another word for that. And so it's a, um, and so that's, that's, a, that's a, a liturgy that you've grown up with, that this is, this is how that works. That's what's going to happen next. Um, there's a liturgy to our lives it's, and to our culture. It's why Broadway is a nightmare to try to drive down this time of the year is because it's time for people to worship the malls um, this time of the year. It's, it's Christmas season, which means it's time to worship money. Um, and so uh, you may not know this, and I'm, I'm going to come back to this in a second. You may not know this, but because um, I don't talk about it a lot, even though becoming a pastor was a big surprise to me and, and Ginger too, um, but uh, me becoming a pastor was. But but there's actually quite a bit of uh, religious leadership, so to speak, in my family. My father's sister and her husband are Assembly of God pastors. Um, if you're familiar with Assembly of God churches, you can imagine she and I have had some interesting conversations over the years. Um, and my uncle, my mother's brother, was uh, a Methodist minister um, at the, in a United Methodist, in a series of United Methodist churches um, throughout the years in Alabama. And so he and I have also had some interesting conversations. But um, I loved going to his church. It was a really good church. He was a, a talented um, speaker and, and preacher and, and I think taught actually very well. Um, but one of the things that always struck me that was interesting and that I was always a little jealous of was the fact that he always wore um, cer certain garments, um, certain things, like, for example, a stole. Um, and so as we're engaging with this idea of liturgy, what we've been doing intentionally is engaging with the liturgy of other churches. 
So again, it's not like we're creating liturgy for this event or for, our, for the Advent, but in fact that we're engaging with the liturgy of other groups of people or other peoples or throughout history, the liturgy. And so I've always wanted to preach with a stole, so I found a nice celebratory, um, extremely distracting stole um, <laughs> so that you can look at this. It's a Christmas stole. And so part of what struck me is one of the things I love about the idea of liturgy is, is the idea of breaking free of it intentionally. So our normal liturgy would be to not wear, for me to not wear one. So by wearing one, that actually then breaks the kind of pattern and causes us to look at the purpose of some of these type of things. Why do we do what we do? Um, which I think is the great value of liturgy is when we get to be reminded of why these things exist, why they're there. And so my uncle always preached um, with one of these and uh, much more boring than this, but always preached with one of these. Um, and so I thought that was really cool. So what is it? So if you grew up in a more liturgical type of church, um, and today, Sunday morning, at many of the churches around here, the priest or the pastor is wearing one of these. And, and, and why? Now, I don't, I'm not convinced that all of them would even know why beyond, well, that's, I did last week, and, and uh, the guy I did before me. And so, so I wanted to look up and see it. It's called a stole because I went to the Methodist church and I stole one. That's why it's called a stole. Uh, just kidding. I bought it uh, off Amazon, um, which... How disappointing is that, by the way, that there's not like some, I don't have to get someone's permission to buy one. Like you can, you can buy priestly wear and all that kind of stuff on Amazon. This seems like there should be someone you have to go through. You know, like how many of you remember when you discovered you could just go buy a trophy? <laughs> right? Like the world changed at that moment. It's like, wait, that's it? I mean, I can just go buy one and they're not even very expensive? Like, man. Anyway, so that kind of had that same feel. Like I felt wrong buying not directly from God or something. Like, I feel like only he should be able to hand these out. Um, <clears throat> but here's what's wild. So I love the idea of celebration and remembrance. I love the idea of things that remind us to focus in on what really matters the most, which is part of why I wanted to get a Christmas stole. But here's what it's... Now, sadly, largely, probably where the idea of wearing a stole came from is not a great thing. It's because under the Roman era, this is how Romans showed authority or honor to their political leadership as they gave them stuff like this. Kind of like if you have a master's degree or a, or, a, or a doctorate or something like that and they hung one on you for honor society or something like that in high school, it was the same kind of thing. It's meant to communicate honor and respect. And so it's very likely that the, when the church took them on, it was in an effort to seem important. Not exactly something you want to celebrate. However, you can imagine in the church that we don't do, they did not do that in isolation. Instead, Here's what they talked about. This is meant to represent for the speaker, the teacher, the pastor, the priest, the yoke of Christ. That the, the yoke that in, in Matthew 11, I'm going to reference it uh, if I get there today, that, that, that Jesus Christ has laid a yoke on us. We who are weary and heavy laden, he lays a yoke on us, which is, seems like an awful thing to do to weary and heavy laden people is to give them a burden and a yoke unless you understand he's replacing it. I don't wear, the, I don't wear a yoke that you've placed on me this morning when I teach. I don't wear a yoke that the leadership board has placed on me. I don't wear a yoke that the Baptist General Convention has laid on me. That when I teach, the yoke that I wear is the yoke of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's what this is meant to represent. That this is his yoke. I'm speaking for him today. And so that's, that's meant to be sobering, which uh, let me just tell you, it is. 
Now, that is something that I experience every time I teach, that I, I'm reminded of the fact that I'm teaching um, the words that he would have me teach, not the words that necessarily I would want to teach, which may be tough because, honestly, I find such joy and fascination and fun as I study Scripture that that kind of comes out to, of me a lot when I'm teaching. And so you may not see as often, sometimes you do, the serious side of me. But when I'm digging into this, like this is a... Like, this is serious stuff to me. This is the, the very words, these are the very words of God. Our, our hope as a race and as individuals is the message of Christmas added to the message of Easter, together becoming one message of, uh, of a, a powerful sense of redemption, that, that the whole reason the church exists is because of this. Do you have a question? Isn't that a scarf? It's kind of like a scarf, yes. <laughs> if I did this with it, it would immediately become a scarf. That's a great question. All right, good. That's exactly what I wondered, too. Um, and so, this is a, but it is, it is a great reminder. And I can understand why if, I was, if it was hard for me to remember that, that I would want something like this every week that as I put it on, I reminded myself, this is now no longer me. It's no longer about me. This is no longer, I'm not the important person anymore. This is now the yoke of Christ, and I am essentially hidden behind it. It's also meant um, to uh, kind of exemplify the role of the minister as a servant. It's also meant to be a picture of the towel that Jesus used to wash the feet of his apostles. The idea is that the, the legend is that perhaps some of the early apostles would have worn that towel or a towel used to mop Jesus' face or to mop up his blood. We take on this every week, though imperfectly, because we are amphibians, as C.S. Lewis says. We are spirits, but we are animals. And that's why the things we do matter beyond just what we're doing. Why would we kneel? You can pray while you're driving, hopefully with your eyes open, but you can pray while you're driving. Then why would we kneel to pray? Because sometimes we need to kneel. We need to experience that. We need to be reminded to be put on our face before an almighty God. Why do we sometimes raise our hands when we sing? Same thing. You don't have to raise your hands. You don't have to not raise your hands. It's a, it's a reminder to you. It's a celebration of the fact that the, what's going on spiritually is coming out physically. These things kind of mix together, and it's really cool. So I am going to be preaching today wearing the stole. I hope it's not distracting to you. Um, but it is a, as a reminder today of the connection between us and the brothers and sisters we have all around this community and town and throughout history who have been reminded of the yoke of Jesus Christ as they've taught. Plus, I've always wanted to do it, so um, that's, that's a big part of it, too. Isaiah 61.10 is a reference, is a passage that references kind of the meaning behind this. My soul will rejoice in the Lord, for he has clothed me with a garment of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of gladness. He has placed a crown on my head as a bridegroom and adorned me with beauty as a bride. So again, looking at that passage as is largely connected to the idea of priests and pastors wearing stoles, I thought I would need to get a nice one, um, and especially one that celebrated Christmas. This has all the words and the imagery and like a stained glass window. So <clears throat> jumping back into the book of John, just as a, as, a, as, a care, as a catch up for you, to catch you up, a man was born blind and Jesus healed him in John chapter 9. Then we have 41 verses of controversy about this happening. Um, the, the radical misunderstanding throughout these 41 verses, the blind man gains more and more and more sight. Not just the sight of his eyes, but the sight of his soul and the sight of his heart and the sight of his mind. Meanwhile, the Pharisees, are, their eyes are growing more and more dim. 
They're losing sight of what they did have. And they're losing that sight all throughout chapter 9. The blind man sees more and more. The Pharisees see less and less. Eventually, they are not only blind, they are blind blind. Um, it's kind of like when I, when I was a teenager and people would say, does she like you or does she like you like you? It's kind of that idea. They're not just blind now. They're blind blind. They are, that Jesus sets up two populations. Jesus is very divisive. We're going to talk about it over the next few weeks as we discuss the role of the church and what is the church for a few weeks. We're going to discuss that. Seems like a good reminder at the beginning of each year to do that. What is the church? And it's going to play straight from this passage. But as we look at that, and we're going to talk about the way that Christ and the leaders of the early church fought so hard against divisiveness within the church. Understand that has nothing to do with divisiveness between the teachings of Jesus Christ and the teachings of man. There will always be division there. And Jesus does not flee from it. In fact, he kind of throws down the gauntlet about it on a regular basis. And Jesus declares this division. There are people who are blind, and there are people who see. And then the Pharisees create this kind of weird third option, which is, but there's some of us are blind and think we see. That's the most dangerous place to be of, of all. The blind man who sees by the end of chapter 9, therefore, worships. If you find that the more you grow in Christ, the more you find yourself worshiping, thanking God for the little things and the big things and, and experiencing the, the worship of, uh, the discipline of worship and the joy of worship and the, the just extemporaneous worship and the, the joy of abundant life, good. The Pharisees, as they grow further and further into their blindness, they're looking for something to fight about. The division becomes more and more powerful. They mock, they argue. They become sarcastic and bitter. That's not growing in sight. Sometimes you meet Christians and, you, and it seems like they've been growing in darkness. That, that, that their eyes are going more and more dim the longer they're involved. It's not how it's supposed to happen. Yet that's where the Pharisees' example are. Jesus ends by saying, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But since you say we see, your guilt remains. You claim sight when you are blind. Now, uh, Paul not the Apostle Paul, Paul McKenzie. Paul McKenzie did a great job last week of teaching through this and making this connection. He shows that we really don't know if the beginning of chapter 10, 10, 1 through about 20, 21, we don't know if that's an attachment at the end of 9 or if it's kind of the precursor <coughs> to the rest of 10. Because at the end of 9, we're in the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Somebody told me when I say that when I sound sick, it sounds like the Feast of Booze, like alcohol although they have plenty of that in Jewish feasts, that's not was the idea. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, booths, building, little buildings that they lived in. We talked about that. You can go back um, and look at that. John Keeling and I talked through a couple of weeks to talk about those. You can go back and listen to those. But, um, and so th we don't know if, if chapter 10 begins immediately with the next section or if this is now Hanukkah, which we're going to run into in, in 10 chapter, uh, a verse about 21, 22, we're going to run into Hanukkah. Well, there's a few months between those. So we don't know from the context whether the beginning of John 10 is the beginning of the rest of John 10 or if it's the end of John 9 story. What we do know is that John, the apostle, intentionally puts it in here as a way to connect those two accounts. And so it's, John adds it, he, he, he includes this because it, it fits perfectly connecting the two accounts. I'm going to show you how that works. So we, do, we don't know if the thought is supposed to be that Jesus literally just finished, keeps going if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say, we see your guilt remains, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. We don't know if it's just a continuation like that, 
or if there's days, weeks, hours, or even months between when Jesus finished that last verse and this one, but the thought is clearly a continuation, as we'll show over the next couple of weeks. Um, So, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he goes and calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them. The sheep follow him, they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. (coughs) Now that's impressive, that they didn't understand what he was saying to them. It's not that hard. But it was a little confusing to them, because to them it feels like this strange non sequitur. Whenever Jesus taught this, it would be like me getting up on stage and just stating something that's a common thing we all experience and not making any application. So if I got up and just said, you know, when I need fuel for my car, I go to the gas station. Because only the gas station has the fuel that my car needs. And then I just left it. You'd be going, well, I mean, right? And that's kind of what the Pharisees are doing. They're, going, they're, they're hearing this, right? There's a, there's a sheepfold and there's a gate and there's a gatekeeper. And the sheep go in and they only, and when he got done, the Pharisees go, well, right. Yeah, we know about the sheep thing. Why aren't they catching this? Why aren't they getting the figure of speech? You remember? It's because they are blind. To a blindingly obvious figure of speech, and they can't see it. John is pointing that out to us. Something this obvious, and their blindness remains. Something clearly what Jesus is teaching. So, (laughs) Jesus being Jesus, I imagine him sighing and going, okay, let me try again. Truly, truly, I say to you, wait a second, go down. Okay, get back in verse seven. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, and the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy only. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd so Paul taught, showed you last week, he's, this is the figure of speech, and Jesus is going to explain it a little more slowly to them this time. No, no, I, I'm the gate that I'm talking about. And further, I'm not just the gate, which is where Paul stopped last week, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves. He leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. And cares nothing for the sheep. Now listen, there's a great teachable thing here that I love. One of the, this this idea of the shepherding mindset. When when we hire someone here on staff and we we, we have these about six or seven traits that we tell people. These character traits, they're vitally important to being a good fit on our staff. One of them is a shepherding mindset. Do you see these people and this place as a place where you are a shepherd. Are you a shepherd of these people? Are you a shepherd of this place? That's for all members. If you remember a few weeks ago, I said every member should be a pastor. Well, pastor just means shepherd. That's all it means. It means shepherd. It's the, that's what the Greek means is, is shepherd. We all should be shepherds. Shepherds of one another. Shepherds of this place. Shepherds of these people. Do we want anyone to have a hireling attitude 
If they're working, for example, with our children. Oh, look, there's the wolf. I'm out of here. No, no, we want people who are willing to stand up and defend and, and do what's right and, and make the hard decisions and, and lay down what they have to. But Jesus is going to point out here, see, here's the deal. This, this is, you can find this over in 1 Peter 5. <coughs> we all may be under shepherds, and hopefully we are. But there's only so much we'll pay for the sheep. Now, I do believe we are called, if necessary, to lay down our lives, to lay down our families, to lay down everything for Christ, the great shepherd. But we have to make decisions. There's only so much I will pay for this church. I won't end my marriage for the sake of this church. If me being a pastor threatens my marriage, I will stop being a pastor. I won't, I won't lose my kids over it. I think if I gain the world as a pastor but lose my children, I failed. I won't do it. If I think, it's, if I think my family is suffering in that way, I would walk away. That's a higher calling than my role as on a staff member at this church. I, b- I believe that, and I, I hope you believe that. I think I would be being a terrible example if I sacrificed my family for the sake of being a pastor of the church. There's plenty of pastors. I'm the only person who gets to be the husband and father to these people. I think that's how that works. So that's an example. That is the line Jesus is drawing when he says, no, no, I'm the good shepherd. This is my bride. This, this is my priority. I lay down everything for this flock. All the under-shepherds to one degree eventually, no matter how good a shepherd we are, at some point we're finally eventually a hireling. Yes. Not him. He is the good shepherd. He lays down his life, all of it. It's, it's an incredible picture. That being said, this is, this, is, this is the point I think that we come back to in this. I want you to, I want you to notice this. So I'm going to go back and do it again. But I want you to notice what Jesus is doing here. So Jesus is setting up, for lack of a better term, a sales pitch. So I want you to listen for it. Back in verse 7, we'll start again. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and I come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So, so option number one, good shepherd or thief and robber. And Jesus starts the sales pitch this way. I I believe he is still selling the gospel to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are part of his audience. I don't think Jesus has given up on them. Listen to me, he's saying. You're following a thief. You're following a robber. And the thief has only come to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that you might have life. That's the picture. It's time to trade up. All the other options are hirelings or worse. People are just hirelings or they're thieves and robbers. Money, power, influence, all these things, they're just thieves and robbers or at best, hirelings. When the time comes, they'll bail on you. They will fail you. They'll let you down. Jesus is gathering a flock That's what he's been doing since he came to earth. He started gathering a flock. Since he started his ministry, he walked around the Sea of Galilee. It would point to people and say, you, follow me. And you, follow me. He's gathering a flock. The rabbinical school concept which Jesus is forming is that of a shepherd and his sheep, a teacher and his students. It follows, this this model follows all through. 
follow me. He's gathering a flock. <coughs> Why? To give them abundant life. See, when you trade up shepherds, you trade up, you trade your whole life. Some of you have done that. You've moved from one place to another. If it's a significant move, you feel like you've traded your whole life. Your whole life is different. You've, you've changed jobs. Man, you do that and your whole life kind of changes when you change jobs. It can be really disconcerting. Jesus is saying, as I walk around through the sheepfold, I am the good shepherd. I'm speaking your name. I'm singing and, and making noise. Do you hear my voice? Do you recognize the sound of my voice? Follow me. See all the other people who came before? They're thieves and robbers. Stop following them and start following me instead because I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And not only does he lay down his life for his sheep, but he offers them life and life abundantly. So I've talked about before um, how uh, you know, my decision to not go into the medical world um, uh, I was encouraged at one point. I was in psychology. I was teaching and speaking and that kind of stuff. And, and I was encouraged by somebody, you need to go into psychiatry. You can make a lot more money that way. Um, you have a lot more flexibility that way. You can go anywhere you want and, and make a massive income. And I was like, but I don't, I don't really love medicine. That's not my thing. That's some people's thing. And if it is, that's awesome. But it's not my thing. I don't, I don't love it. As I've said before, like I love everything about medical training except anatomy and chemistry. Other than that, it's, I love it. Um, uh, so, so except for those, so I was like, I don't want to, and the guy said, but, but listen, flexibility and freedom and much more money and that kind of stuff. I was like, all right, well, I'll go that direction then. I'll go pre-med. <clears throat> I'm sitting in my, sitting in my uh, apartment one night, late at night, studying all day, every day for comparative vertebrate anatomy and physiology, because let me just tell you, that's not the direction my brain works. And it was taking tons of time and I was barely passing the class and realizing I had no love for this. And I was literally selling, kind of selling my life. Like I was exchanging life for money. Bad choice. It's like, this is, this is no, I have no heart for this. I have no passion for this. I have no desire for this. Why would, I, why would I do this? I sense no calling in this. This is not me. Why would I do this just for money or, or, or freedom? So I t as I've said before, like the, the reason that came to me is because what I was doing while studying was watching Dead Poet Society. I'd love to say I was reading the Bible and God changed my heart, but it was Dead Poet Society that did it, that I realized, what am I thinking? This isn't what I want to do. I have no heart for this. So I never even went back and got my lab gear. I mean, I just went and dropped all, my, all those classes, traded out, and, and went back to what I, was, what I loved doing, which was teaching and, 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 and the psychological more side of the world and the biblical more side of the world. And so that's what I love to do. But here's what's wild. Discovering that idea, that, that, that Latin concept, carpe diem, to seize the day that dead poets kind of introduced to me. It was not long after that, this, this post um, Civil War era, this kind of weird romantic era that, that America went through as we began to, to re-engage with what it means to live as a human. And the problem was no one had any idea what they were talking about in that movement, the whole Carpe Diem movement. I mean, it's all about self-gratification or, or whatever. But the idea of, of sucking the marrow out of life, as a, as a young man, I was wrestling through, what is, what does the, how does a Christian do that? What does it look like for a Christian to do that? Because there's there feels there's some truth in that. So how does that look like? And it was not long after that, the first time that was introduced to me, John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. That is not the version of Christianity that I grew up with. The version of Christianity was that you might have life and have it highly restricted, <laughs> as little as possible. 
God barely tolerates you enjoying anything in life. That he can, he, he's just, there was, I remember there was a song later that we used to sing in, in college to, that, that a guy had written to mock the version of Christianity that we came from, to be honest. It was called Dr. Bob. And uh, Dr. Bob Lipsay was in the first service. And I was like, sorry, it was not you personally. But the, um, uh, it's, it, the, the line was, Dr. Bob wanted to be a preacher, so he studied for oh so long. And now he's got a piece of paper that tells him he's right and everybody else is wrong. And the last line of the chorus was, if I've caught you in the middle of fun, then you're probably in the middle of sin. And that was the version of Christianity many of us have been grown up with, with this behavioral modification of this, this God who loves to restrict. He can't wait to tell us no. God, can I go like, no. Like he can't wait to say, no, not that, and no, not that. And, but I love like, no, no, no. And that's what we were raised with, was this, this weird version of a Santa God who just can't wait for us to do something naughty so he can move us over to the naughty list. And, and it was such a, it's such a weird version of Christianity when you have in the, in the Gospel of John, you have John quoting Jesus saying things like, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. You have the Apostle Luke describing Jesus saying, no, no, stuffed down, shaken, overflowing. That's the kind of life I have for you. And to realize this carpe diem model is only understood within following Jesus Christ. He's the only shepherd who can do that. Everything else is self-gratification, which will die, 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 die. Eventually that well runs dry. And by eventually, I mean the minute you get to it. Some of you know this. Jesus says, no, no, trade up. Get out of that. Get away from the thieves and the robbers. Get away from the hirelings and follow the good shepherd who says, I have life and life abundantly. Found it other places all through scripture. What's funny is once you realize it's there, and these are just a few of them, <coughs> by the way. <laughs> About that time, by the way, I also discovered a speaker named Tony Campolo, who I'm no great fan of his politics a lot of times, but man, his, his preaching and his speaking biblically is very powerful, and, and he talks about living this, this highly risky Christian life where you do things that don't make sense to everybody else because you think God has called you to do it, and, and you get to have these adventures that God calls you to that uh, is just fascinating. It's real. Following that model, the abundant life model, is, is incredible, trying to follow what Jesus has for us. I, I'm a big fan of his. One of his talks he interviewed, he's a sociologist, he interviewed either directly or indirectly, I don't know if he's reporting on or did it, but like 50 people over the age of 95 and asked them what they would do differently if they had it to do over again. And one of their top three things was risk more. Was risk more. Life's over. Why did I spend all those years in a job that I hated in relationships that, that were unhealthy for me? They were, why did I do some of that stuff? Why didn't I go out and try to make friends? Why didn't I, why didn't I risk an abundant life. <coughs> Listen to some of these others. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk. <coughs> That's that peripateo concept. A lifestyle. So this isn't just walk. This is a, how you live your life. Not as unwise, but wise. Knowing, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Evil here not meaning morally evil, meaning they're gonna, they're gonna take away. They're gonna go away. They're short, they go by quickly, so make the best use of it you can. Again, you, sometimes you hear people teach this as though this means like, so make sure and don't ever mess up. No, no, wise is what's being talked about here. Fulfilled, meaningful, following Christ. It's the only place to find it. I love this Mark 10 passage, 29 through 31. Recently, um, it was re reintroduced to me just a couple of months ago. Rebecca shared a, a sermon that I've gone back and listened to a couple of times and 
and re-engage with this passage. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, throws that in there, and in the age to come, eternal life. What a, what a powerful passage. Is that the Christian life that we have? I will tell you, it is the Christian life that I have. It is, it is unreal. I keep a track in my Bible of places I've gotten to go and people I've gotten to meet and relationships I've gotten to form. New mothers and new fathers and new brothers and new sisters and new friends and new homes that I've gotten to stay in that I would never have gotten to. This isn't health and wealth junk. That's not what's being talked about here. It's an abundant life. Where I was last weekend was doing a, a, a wedding for a friend of mine, a young man, actually many of you know Zach Tingle. Zach um, was married last week and where he wanted to do the wedding was in Colorado at Sky Ranch's Ute Trail, which is up in the mountains. And so last week I was suffering for Jesus in the mountains of Colorado uh, in this beautiful cabin, just me and Holland hanging out for three days, just the two of us up there um, in, in knee deep snow, which Holland's never experienced before. It was a great time for he and I to hang out and to get to experience all of this together. And on top of all of that, so the, the best part of the whole experience was the bachelor party, which was um, all the guys hanging out and playing some games. And at some point we'd go outside under these heat lamps because it was like zero. Um, it was very, very cold, but it was awesome. And hearing godly men speak into Zach's life. Here's what you've been to me. Here's the kind of man I see that you are. Here's what God has revealed to me through you. And my son got to experience that into the, the kind of the depths of the night. Man, who, how do you pay for that? How do, you, how do you make that happen with just money? You don't. That is the gospel in action. As God provide, provided for me a house that I never would have gotten to stay with my son in a place where I couldn't afford to go probably. Like this is a, it's a beautiful, and, and, and even if I had, I couldn't have had that experience outside of the abundant life of Jesus Christ. I mean, I've gotten to experience friendships in Israel because of Jesus Christ. In Egypt, <coughs> many of us have gotten, we have friends down in South and Central America because of Jesus Christ. Many of us, when you experience this, God replaces anything we give up a hundred times over. If you're following Christ and you're living that abundant life, it is shocking what God will provide for it. So I encourage you, follow him. Do what he says. Listen to him. Matthew 11, which I referenced earlier. Come to me all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and yearn for me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and will find rest for your souls. So who do you follow? The one whose yoke is heavy, damaging, destructive? Or the shepherd who says, no, no, my yoke is easy. My burden is fit for you. It's appropriate for you. Do you follow which life? Which do you choose? I am the good shepherd. Verse 11, back to this. Here's the sales pitch. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. He may care for his position, his income, his title, whatever, but not the sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Listen to this. This language, lay down my life for the sheep. This lay down my life language, which is 
um, unique to the writer John. He references Jesus saying it multiple times in this book and in in his other letters. (coughs) Maybe most powerfully on a Sunday when we are celebrating love and the Advent. John 15, 12, and 13 has quotes Jesus saying this. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. And someone lay down his life for his friends. That's the kind of shepherd that is calling you. One who says, I have life, I have abundant life, and my life I will lay down for you. And his love is too big for just one ethnicity, for just one nationality. We see this fascinating passage back in Genesis and in Deuteronomy when God is, is dividing up the peoples and the lands and putting spiritual authority over the different, over the different lands. But he claims Israel as his own. He, he delegates the, the leadership of other nations to other spiritual beings in his, in his council. But Israel, he says, no, no. It'd be like a Trump said, okay, we got governors, we got senators, we've got congresspeople, we've got all that kind of stuff. But I... I'm going to be not only the president, but also the governor of this state and the mayor of this town. I'm going to run the show very specifically here. Now, as it turns out, Jesus is in the end going to have authority over all of that. But at where we are, here we have Jesus saying, no, no, my love's too big for just one nationality. Therefore, we get this. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. Unless you're Jewish, that's you. And that's me. That's who Jesus is referencing here. It's almost certainly a misuse. Some people try to use this passage to say that Jesus brings all religions together. I mean, he can if he wants to. Certainly within his authority. But almost certainly what Jesus means here is, I'm going to go find sheep who have been lost. I'm going to go purchase sheep out of other flocks. I'm going to go take sheep from other pastures and make them my sheep in my fold under one flock as one shepherd That's bigger than just us. So, as we talk about love, this is the invitation, I think, that Jesus is creating for us, that Jesus is creating for his audience here. If you're following another sheep other than him, you're making a huge mistake. You need to follow the the shepherd who, one, has life to give, and when he gives it, he gives it abundantly. Two, who will lay down his life for you that that's what he's going to do. And it is what he does. It is the message of Easter, which we'll get to in a few months. So I'm gonna pray, and when I'm done praying, I'm gonna ask you to stand. Go ahead and stand, if you will. I wanna pray. While, we, while I pray, if you are not following this shepherd, if you don't know this shepherd, let today be the day of salvation for you. Let today be the day that you trade up shepherds, that you hear the sound of his voice and you come forward and would love to pray with you like we got to with Eric this morning. Um. If you're someone who is already part of his flock and you've already talked with our welcome home team and you're ready to come be a member here at this church and to live out church here with us, we'd love to have you. Um, We're a dysfunctional flock of people um, who would love to have you become part of our dysfunction um, as we seek to worship him. But however you need to respond. So after I'm done praying, John will continue and you can either sing, you can pray, do whatever the Spirit leads you to do. Father, we're so grateful that you are not just Father, but you were revealed to us the good shepherd. Thank you for the good shepherd, your son, that was recognized by the shepherds as a lamb without blemish or defect. That they were called to this this little baby 
in a manger to be declared by them a firstborn male without blemish, without defect, an appropriate sacrifice, someone who could lay down his life. Thank you, Father, that as as we look back to the second greatest shepherd in all of history, King David, and Jesus in his line going to Bethlehem, his family going to Bethlehem, and Jesus being born there, Father, I pray we'll be reminded over these next few days of this great theme as you reveal yourself to us through your Son and the power of your Spirit that we are sheep gone astray. We need a good shepherd, one who loves us more than we could ever love ourselves. Lord, I pray for each heart here today to be prepared to listen to the sound of your Son's voice. I pray this in his name.